right, good morning, beloved. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, please. Matthew chapter 6, as we continue our study, Lord, teach us to pray. Hope uh, you've been growing in your prayer life over the last several weeks. We've had plenty of opportunity and uh, small group uh, Bible studies and uh, preaching, uh, we got a couple more weeks to go. I was thinking I was going to be able to finish this this week, but the Lord's got one more week for us, unless he wanted to be here three hours today, but I thought I'd break it up into, into two. I want to begin by reading with you the, the Lord's Prayer, so uh, you'll have the setting for our thought this morning. So um, let's begin in verse 9 as Jesus uh, is teaching us how we ought to pray. Hear the words of our Lord. He says, pray then in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is giving us a pattern of how we are to pray. In less than 70 words here is a masterpiece of the infinite wisdom of God, who alone could compress every conceivable element of true prayer into this one brief and simple form he says in verse 9 pray then in this way this is the way a true son or daughter of the king ought to pray he didn't say pray these exact words there's nothing wrong with praying these exact words but more importantly this is how we ought to pray in fact in verse 7 we spent our first week recognizing that he specifically instruct us do not use thoughtless repetitions when you pray. So what does the church do with this incredible instruction on how we are to play? We turn it into a thoughtless repetition of words. We stick at the end of some worship service, and yet we still don't know how to pray. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been going right back to the well, folks. Because I don't know about you, I want to pray the way Jesus has taught me to pray. And incredibly, it's still sitting right here in Matthew chapter 6 all along. So if you're ever struggling in your own personal prayer life, go to these verses and model your prayer around this. This is what I've been doing every day throughout the past couple of weeks. Align your heart with the way that Jesus has taught us to pray. Hit these key elements. And I promise you, if you'll do that, you'll have the confidence and uh, the boldness to know that you're praying the promises of God's kingdoms because these are the words of the king. Now, over the last uh, first uh, couple of weeks, our focus has been in verses 9 and 10 as the prayer starts first and foremost with God. Our Father, who art in heaven, that's God's paternity. He's our Father. Hallowed be your name. That's God's priority, that we hallow his name. Your kingdom come. 
That's God's plan. Your will be done. That's God's purpose. So before we ever get to our needs, Jesus instructs us to put God in his rightful place. Our focus is on bringing God glory. How? Through his priority, his plan, and his purpose. So now we turn our attention to the second half of the prayer, and we begin with God's provision. God's provision. You'll see this in the outline, and in verse 11, it begins with this simple and familiar petition, give us this day our daily bread. And honestly, I couldn't help but wonder because of the simplicity do we even need to pause on this verse at all and i think that only shows us that we really don't understand all that's here so let's try to approach it um, i'm aware of the fact that when you come to the phrase give us this day our daily bread it may at first seem a little unrelated to us here in the very blessed u.s i mean when's the last time you prayed lord i plead with you to provide for me a meal We'll probably more likely to pray, Lord, please prevent me from eating another meal, right? Teach me some self-discipline to lose weight, Lord. I mean, I mean, quite frankly, I went shopping with my wife last week, and you could get any kind of bread in any kind of color package that you wanted. It, it just doesn't really seem to be a major prayer request that most of us would really pray here. So what does this mean then? to us what is this text saying this preacher sermon say well you know you're gonna have to imagine that you didn't have any bread and then that you were praying for some and or do we or do we just skip over this section of the of the prayer because we we have bread does does this say anything to us i think it does i think it does first of all let's uh remember our context the lord is talking about prayer here because prayer is one of the elements of his kingdom and so the whole book of Matthew, all 28 chapters are presenting Jesus Christ as the king. Chapters 5 through 7 present the standards of his kingdom and the uh, principles of his kingdom. And one of those is prayer. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And so Christ is presenting here for us uh, the proper pattern on how we ought to pray. And in this very simple prayer, we have really all the necessary ingredients for prayer and one of the elements of praying is for us to pray for our daily bread now that doesn't assume that we have it or don't it's just there so we have to deal with that but in this prayer we noted first of all there there's two sections the first section is dealing with god the section second section is dealing with man the first one is dealing with god's glory the second section is dealing with man's need First, we saw three requests. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. And those focus on God and for his glory. Then we move now to these three other requests focusing on man's need. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. We cannot pray properly in regard to our own human situation until God is in his proper place. And when we get to the second part of the prayer, it doesn't um, just put God aside either. Even though God is primarily exalted in the first half, the second half exalts him also. For example, the fact that God gives us our daily bread 
forgives us of our debts and leads us not in temptation in an expression of his power and of his grace. It's not that the first three uh, butter up God, if you will, and then we really lay it on him to what we really want. No, we are saying, God, glorify yourself in our daily provision. God, glorify yourself in, in uh, our constant forgiveness. Glorify yourself, Father, in leading and directing of your spirit in our lives. Father, be on display in your world so that your kingdom may come to earth. And honestly, I can't tell you how my heart is continually grieved over this movement today and so-called Christianity, the name it and claim it prayer that goes about demanding things from God because of who we are. Do you see any of that in this prayer? <laughs> no. That isn't the point of prayer at all. We pray to give God the privilege and the opportunity of revealing his glory through meeting the deepest of our human needs. When we pray, we want God to be on full display, not because we make demands on him for our benefit, but for his. For God be the glory. And yet so many people approach God in this way. We approach God in prayer in order to get what we want. And when we don't get what we want, then we begin to question God. And we use a prayer as a way to get it rather than an avenue for God to gain his glory. Which is what John 14, 13 says it's for. So if you never learn anything else from this lesson, learn that all your prayers are for God's glory. All of them. All of them. In fact, do you realize even that when you are eating, when you are eating, it's not primarily for your sustenance, it's for God's glory? That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to who? To the glory of God. You say, but how can eating food be to the glory of God? It is if you know where it came from, right? It is if you are thankful to the one who has provided it. Every single thing is for the glory of God. Everything. And prayer, nonetheless, is for his glory also. So, with the right perspective, then, let's look at this petition for God's glory. Give us this day our daily bread. This is a basic need of man. A basic need. The term bread Beloved, all is really all of man's physical needs. All of them. It's a broad term. It's a prayer for the physical need of man to be fulfilled. Now, that's an obvious thing. But in our society, uh, it's somewhat remote because we just have so much here. We're so incredibly blessed. Should we really be asking God what we really have in such abundance? Is such a request even appropriate? Why would we ask God to supply us with bread? What does this really say? Well, first of all, I think like every part of the disciples' prayer, which I prefer to call it, it extends beyond the first century. It extends to all believers of every age and in every situation. And there are some key elements I want you to consider. First of all, the substance. What's the substance here? It is bread. But it isn't just talking about bread in terms of a loaf of bread. 
um, give us this day our daily bread is talking about the physical and it thrills me to know that the God who created the entire universe who is the God of all space time and eternity who is infinite holy and is completely himself self-sufficient should be caring about supplying the physical needs of his children and yet he does that same God who created everything is concerned with the fact that you have meals to eat and clothes to wear and a roof to put over your head. Now that isn't asking for the luxuries of life, but that God would provide us with the necessities that we need daily. I think that the heart of this petition is found in Proverbs chapter 30. Verses 8 through 9. This is Agar here. He's praying to God. And he says, God, uh, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much that I deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I become so poor that I steal and dishonor your name. I think that's the heart of this prayer. Provide me with enough for today, Father, that I can remain dependent upon you. Not so much that I forget who is the one who's providing, or not too little that I must go out and steal and dishonor your name. Now again, you still might be thinking, yeah, but Nick, I don't actually have this need. Would there be any reason for me to pray anything like this? And I would say, yes, there is, and here's why. And I want, I want you to get this. The essence of the prayer is really an affirmation that all of our substance comes from God. All of it. It is me recognizing that you, Father, are the source of everything in my life. You supply the food. You supply the clothing. You supply my shelter. And it is that constant daily affirmation. It is, for example, when I ask the Lord to forgive my sin and to cleanse my life of something. Well, why would I need to ask him that? Hasn't he already promised to forgive my sin? Yes, but he has also said to keep on coming and confess it. And when I say to him, Lord, lead me and guide me in a certain direction, doesn't the Bible say that he will lead me and guide me in this way and this way? Yes. But he wants to affirm that I recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ over my life. So I might not have to pray, oh God, provide us with food today. But I will ever and always pray, God, everything I have and that all that I'm blessed to share with others comes from your good and gracious hand. And though we may not always be on the edge of hunger, we are always to be thankful for all of it comes from him. And I just want to talk about this for just another minute or so because I think this is so important. You know, we tend to think that Uh, We provide everything for ourselves, don't we? Don't we really? I mean, I make my living. I earn my wages. Uh, I I work hard for what we have. I mean, we say this all the time. I buy my own bread. What do do I owe God, really? I mean, I'm carrying my own load, frankly. And if we don't say that, that's kind of just how we operate. For example, when's the last time that you prayed with authentic, heartfelt gratitude? Lord, I thank you for this meal, for the fact that I have food to actually eat. 
recognizing that there are those right now that do not. Clothes to wear, shelter over my head, a bed to rest my head on, and that I have enough physical strength to go to that job that I like to complain about every single day. How often do we pray, thank you that I have such a a meaningful and rich life that I can go to work and provide all by your goodness. That's what he's after here, here. That's what he's after. God cares about the little things. He really does. God, God is involved, wants to be involved. He knows when the sparrow hops. God knows the number of hairs on your, your head. And everything that there is in the world, he orders and controls for us so that we are always to be thankful. You know, we live in a world today where everyone's so paranoid about everything. People are fearful that they're going to lose their existence, maybe for fear of uh, the pollution and uh, resources are deteriorating and we're afraid of overcrowding and population. Uh, We're afraid of the ozone being broken up and um, we're afraid of all this and yet we have all this money and all these resources. But yet man still knows that he is always on the brink of this devastation of his environment to the point where he has no resources which ought to drive him to the recognition that God upholds the whole thing. You know, in the book of Revelation, there says there's going to come a day when God turns out the lights, when God turns rivers to blood, when the sea swallows up all the ships, kills all the kinds of fish, when literal devastation sweeps across the whole world, the world, the sun goes black, the moon has no light from it, The world's gone crazy and all the resources of the earth is gone in a single hour. In Revelation 18, the whole economic system collapses. The music stops because there's no more songs to sing and then it won't matter what you have because it won't be worth a nickel because none of it will buy anything to preserve your life. And man knows the potentiation of that, but man never takes the jump to the fact that if it weren't for God who upholds everything, by the word of his power, it would all just fall apart. God does that. It is God who brings the rain and makes things to grow. It is God who cycles the seasons. It is God who produces the minerals in the soil to make the earth fertile. It is God who gives us the natural resources to propel ourselves around the world. It is God who provides us the animals from which we eat and make our clothing from. Every single thing that is on this earth is here because God put it here. God put it here. It is God who made it all. And so part of my prayer should ever and always be, Father, give us this day our daily bread. And I thank you and recognize that you are the giver of every good thing and for meeting all of my physical necessities. That's why we pray something like, give us this day our daily bread. So that's God's provision, which relates to um, physical sustenance. The second point in the prayer is of a spiritual nature, and that's God's pardon. God's pardon. Look at verse 12, as we're reminded again of this petition. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then notice also how the petition is footnoted, essentially, in verses 14 and 15. 
As Jesus adds, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Hmm. Even though we are fully redeemed, we, we still have a sin problem and we must face that problem. This petition, verse 12, is prayed by one who already belongs to God. This prayer begins, our Father. Our Father. The prayer then affirms this is a living and vital relationship with a child of God through faith. So we are to pray, forgive us our debts. To acknowledge again that we need God's forgiveness. I know there are some people who think that when you become a Christian, there's no need to confess sin anymore or to seek God's cleansing and forgiveness. That's not true. Because here we find those who can call God our Father must also pray, forgive us our debts. Now in understanding the fullness and meaning of verse 12, in a verse 14 and 15, which footnote it, we must first recognize the problem. The problem is sin. The problem is sin. Forgive us implies that we have done something for which we need forgiveness of. Debt in verse 12 implies a sin. Trespass in verses 14 and 15 equally implies sin. Sin is a reality in the life of a Christian. When you become a Christian, you don't all of a sudden stop sinning. You don't all of a sudden lose your sensitivity to sin. In fact, the truth is, is that when you become a believer, you become more sensitive to sin. We know our sin. That's the problem. So principle number one is sin makes us guilty and brings judgment. Sin makes us guilty and brings judgment. Where there is sin in our life, there is judgment. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Whom the Lord loves, he what? He chastens. And every son, he scourges. And part of that is the chastening of our sinfulness. Our sinfulness. Now, um, the New Testament uses about five different words for sin. I'm not going to be able to <laughs> read all these correctly. Hamardia, which means to actually miss the mark. Often we don't hit the target is one, and when we don't hit the target, we fall short of God's glory. Oh, there it goes. Um, thank you. Parabas means to uh, step across. God draws a line and says, uh, stay here, and we step across it. Anamia means lawlessness. We have broken God's laws. Uh, Paratma, which is used in verses 14 and 15, translated trespass. It means to slip or to fall. It's sin as a result of carelessness. Not necessarily intention, uh, being uh, intentional about it, but it's sin just the same. We can easily slip right back into disobedience, can't we? And then the fifth is the word aphilma. And that's the word where we get debt from. Because we have violated God's law, we are in debt to him, and we have to deal with this debt by seeking God's forgiveness. So that's the problem, sin. And if you deny it, you have the biggest problem uh, of all, because 1 John, here we go, 
1 John 1.10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make God a what? A liar. And his word is not in us. So first, the problem is sin. Secondly, the provision is forgiveness. The provision is forgiveness. We see it six times in this passage. Twice in verse 12. Twice in 14 and verse 15. Principle number two is, Forgiveness is offered by God on the grounds of Christ's death. Forgiveness is offered by God on the grounds of Christ's death. Our problem can be dealt with because there is forgiveness. Now, if I've already been forgiven of all my past and present uh, future sins, why am I asking God to forgive me again? Well, because I think we see two different aspects of forgiveness in the Bible. And that's what I want you to see this morning. And I'll be honest, this is really just thrilling to me to share with these, these two aspects of forgiveness with you because I think it'll bring clarity to an area I know a lot of you have struggled in before. So I'm going to create two titles for these. These are not in the Bible, but we will see them described in Scripture so that we can separate them. The first one I'm going to call judicial forgiveness. Think of a judge in a courtroom. Judicial forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness is full, complete, positional forgiveness granted by God as the moral judge of the universe and by it our sins, past, present, and future are totally and completely and forever forgiven. We are justified, declared righteous, eternally. And that happens when you are saved. When God has called you out of the darkness into the kingdom of light and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. At that moment, the righteousness, uh, righteousness of Christ is imputed onto you and you who have uh, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God are instantly made righteous. And Romans 3 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So... The righteousness of Christ is imputed onto you. God drops the, the gavel of his mercy. He hits the table with it and says, declared righteous in Christ. That is an absolute. That is a positional truth. That is eternal as God is eternal. It's un, unchangeable and forever. Covered by the blood, blood of the lamb, put into your account. God's justice is fully satisfied, settled. Next case. And that's why it says in Romans chapter 8, who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Then it goes on to say, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's settled. And we could go right through the whole Bible, and there are uh, many words to um, describe it, to um, involve God taking away our sin, um, covering our sin, God blotting out our sin. He has removed it as far as the, the east from the west. It is done, judicially settled for good. Now, if we have Christians and praying this prayer, our Father, and all of our sins forever are forgiven, and God has dropped a, a gavel and declared us righteous, then why are we praying, forgive us our debts? Why would Jesus ask us to pray this? Why are we asking God for forgiveness? What is the point of praying this type or kind of prayer? 
point of it is answered in the second kind of forgiveness. There is not only judicial forgiveness, there is also parental forgiveness. Parental forgiveness. Maybe you can come up with a better word than that. Parental is based on the fact of our father begins the prayer. So let's just go with that for now. Parental forgiveness. Now, with parental forgiveness, we are not dealing with God as a righteous judge. We are dealing with God here as our loving father. Our loving father. Now, even though we have been judicially forgiven forever, we still sin, don't we? Yeah. And when we sin, something happens in our relationship to God. The relationship doesn't end, but something is lost in the intimacy of it, right? For example, if your children sin against you by disobeying you, the relationship doesn't end, right? Hopefully not. They're still your children. Uh, you're still their father or their mother. And there's a certain amount of forgiveness in your heart that is automatic because they're in your family. But there's something in the relationship that has caused a loss of intimacy until they come and say, Father, I'm sorry. And then that intimacy is restored. That's what this prayer is talking about here. This isn't some unbeliever per, uh, praying for salvation. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the forgiveness that gives the fullness of joy to the intimacy with God. That's what he's talking about. And I want to illustrate this to you from Psalm chapter 51. If you want to turn there quickly. Psalm chapter 51. This is, uh, this is great. This uh, illustrates um, from um, David's um, heart. Who's, uh, who's hurting. Who's pouring out for forgiveness. Uh, David, a man of God. He was a man of God. He was a redeemed man. Mark it. David was saved. David had received Old Testament salvation. Righteousness was imputed to David's account. He believed in God. He trusted in God. His faith was in God and God alone. He had received redemption. The righteousness of Christ as of yet future had been imputed onto his account by faith. However, David fell into sin. Terrible sin. He committed adultery. Worse, he committed murder. This was awful. In fact, had he had been anyone else other than a king, he probably would have lost his life. But I want you to notice the nature of his prayer in Psalm 51, because this is the prayer that comes out of a guilt-ridden heart, stained uh, heart, a blood-stained heart, as he uh, reflects on his sin. And I just want you to notice, first of all, there in verse 14, David says, uh, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Now notice, oh God, the God of my salvation. David affirms that God is still the God of his salvation. He cries out to a God whose, whose presence is there, whose spirit is there with him. But even in affirming that the judicial forgiveness was there, David can't help but feel the loss of something intimate in his relationship with God. And that's what he means when he cries out in verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin 
is always before me. He's saying, I can't forget my sin, O Lord. It haunts me day and night. Verse 4, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Do you see here the, the difference of forgiveness? David was saved, but there was something between him and God creating in him uh, a feeling of loss in his relationship with God that he wants back. He wants that back. That's why he says in verse 8, make me, uh, hear, uh, make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. He wanted that joy back, didn't he? That's what he wanted. He wanted that joy back. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The capper is in verse 12. Restore to me the what? The joy of it. It doesn't say restore my salvation. He says restore to me the joy of it. The joy of my salvation. So, Judicial forgiveness is the grace that takes care of my salvation. While parental forgiveness takes care of the joy of it. See? So I can be forgiven, but if I'm sinful and unconfessing, I'm forfeiting the joy, the fullness that comes from that relationship. That's the issue. That's the point of this prayer. I want to give you one more example. Turn to uh, John's gospel for a moment. John chapter uh, 13. I can't, I can't wait till we go through this chapter as we're hitting a pause on, on John. I taught out of this passage years ago, but I, I want to show you something completely different from how I taught out of it many years ago. A whole different angle here. Here in uh, uh, chapter 13, our dear Lord is speaking of his great love of his disciples. In spite of their waywardness and sinfulness, and, and, and in spite of the fact that they were all sitting around, and we see in the other Gospels, they're arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. That's right before this scene. There they were, caught up in their own uh, self-centeredness and pride, unconcerned with the Lord's impending death. And in the midst of it all, the dear Lord takes off his outer garment, puts a towel around his waist, and he begins to wash feet. It's an act of total humility and almost all the time that's all this sermon or lesson we pull out of this is from. Humility. And it's a great lesson of humility. Absolutely. But I want you to notice something here. And this really spoke to me this weekend as I was studying this. Uh, when we come to Peter in uh, verse 8 there. Peter said to him, to our Lord, You shall never wash my feet. It, it, this is not going to happen. I, I won't allow it, Lord. I believe Peter is probably feeling a little convicted. The fact that he's been arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And he's been selfish and self-centered and sensitive to Christ. And, and he just won't allow it. You're not going to wash my feet, Lord. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you'll have no part with me. And he takes this whole physical scene of humility and 
everything else that we can get from this. And he, the Lord turns this into a tremendous spiritual truth about forgiveness. He says, Peter, if you really want to know what it is to have uh, fellowship with me, if you want the, the fullness of a relationship, you better let me wash you. So what does Peter say? He says, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. <laughs> Do the whole deal, Lord. Oh, Peter. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, he who was bathed needs only to wash his feet. For you see, he's already been made entirely clean. Peter, you're clean. I only want to wash your feet. Because Jesus is trying to point a tremendous spiritual truth here. You are all sitting around this table sinning. But you are already clean. I only need to wash your feet, Peter. Jesus says in verse 10, but not all of you. Verse 11, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, not uh, you are not all clean. One of you, Judas, is not redeemed, is not washed. But the rest of you, you're already clean and righteous. You've, you've already been clean. You've been, been, been made righteous by faith. It's been imputed to your account. I'm not talking about washing you all over again. Now, you only get made righteous how many times? Once, right? You, you don't need that again. What I'm interested in is keeping the dirt off of your feet. Now, in those days, of course, they would take a bath, presumably in the morning, and bathe their entire body. And in that part of the world, the, the roads would be either muddy or dusty. And you can imagine with improper drainage all the filth that would be around that would get onto their feet from wearing the sandals <clears throat> they'd be dry there'd be dust everywhere and so throughout the day your feet would get dirty so every time you'd enter a home or eat a, a meal it was necessary for you to uh, wash your feet it's just a matter of decency so i think the lord is teaching them here an incredible spiritual truth he's saying you've already had judicial forgiveness you were washed clean the moment that you were redeemed. You had your spiritual bath when you believed. All that is necessary for me to do to keep the fullness of our relationship is to wash your feet. That's parental forgiveness. You see that now? And daily as we walk through the world and collect the dust from the world and those sins that we commit, and as we confess those things, they're washed, forgiven. And if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9 says, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. What a glorious truth. We should be running to the Lord confessing our sins. He's simply saying once you've been cleaned, bathed in the saving blood of Jesus Christ, you've received judicial forgiveness, that doesn't have to be done again. But parental forgiveness is something that goes on every day as we keep that fullness of communion open with our Lord. Listen, and I've been convicted of this all over again. When you pray, you better pray in accordance with Matthew chapter 6. 
Somewhere in your prayers after you acknowledge that his name be hallowed, that his kingdom be come, that his will be done, and after you acknowledge that God is the source of your physical and daily sustenance, you need to face the fact that your feet are dirty. And you need to acknowledge the fact that as long as they're dirty and you're unconfessing of, of sin, there is a loss of the fullness of joy in the intimacy and communion that you can have with God. You say, but if I keep going back to the Lord, you know, every day and keep saying, Lord, I'm here again. I did it again. Not me again. Doesn't God get sick of it? No, because he is rich in mercy. And that's why in uh, Romans chapter 5, it says, where sin abounds, grace abounded much more. Much more. God loves to forgive and you can come back as many times as you need to. It won't diminish his love. We're not talking about stopping on the fullness of his grace, but in an honest confession as we go through our daily life. Now, I know we're running out of time. Um, I want to address this prerequisite of receiving forgiveness. We have to, so I'm sorry. But look back at the prayer in verse 12. In verse 12, he says to uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The NIV translates it closer to the correct meaning. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So the idea is before we uh, ever seek forgiveness, our own familia, uh, for which our own sin against God, for which we are indebted, before we ever go and do that, we have to go and forgive those who have sinned against us. That's, that's pretty potent stuff there, folks. First, we forgive, then we are forgiven. First we forgive, then we are forgiven. That's the order right here. Before we come to God and get our feet washed each day, before we say, Lord, cleanse me and use me, we've got to be sure that we've forgiven others. That's the prerequisite. Now just trace your steps back for a minute here and think about this. So you look at your life and you say, Nick, you know, I come to church all the time and I read my Bible all the time and I spend lots of time in prayer and I'm confessing my sin, but I just don't have the joy that I ought to have. I miss out being used by God in my daily life. I just don't feel like my life is all that it could be. Maybe you haven't backed up far enough. You got to go back one more step. One more step. Maybe all that confession isn't cutting it because the Lord isn't giving you release from those sins because he's still got something cooking with somebody else that you haven't forgiven. And basically you short-circuited your own spiritual welfare. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not my words. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that he knows. So begin to examine your life at that level. I know I'm examining my life here as well. Oswald Sanders said something. Jesus is here stating a principle and God's dealing with his children. He deals with us as we deal with others. He measures us by the yardstick we use on others. The prayer is not forgive us because we forgive others. It's forgive us as we have already forgiven others. That's the idea. Another illustration that's very clear. Brother Don just used it for the tithe. Give and what? Be given unto you. For the same measure that you use, it'll be measured back to you. God uses the same method for forgiveness. <laughs> same, same method. How about this one? 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. He who sows sparingly, will also reap sparingly. 
he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. God deals with us the, the way that we deal with him. Whatever we invest into God's kingdom, we receive in return. If we harbor sin and grudges um, us, he cuts us off from the blessings that we would otherwise receive. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. What about your life? Are you forgiving? Are you forgiving? Because if you're not, God's not going to forgive you, and you're not going to be going through the world still with muddy feet. Oh, judicially, you are justified in the righteousness of Christ. It's imputed onto you, but the joy is gone. The intimacy isn't there. You're missing something. We should be motivated to uh, forgive because of Christ's example. Ephesians 4 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. John tells us in 1 John 2, verse 6, the one who says he abides in Christ ought himself walk in the same manner as he walked. Forgiveness is the mark of a truly regenerated heart, brothers and sisters, because it reflects God's own gracious forgiveness. Matthew chapter 18, we will close with this. This uh, will illustrate this tremendous truth. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. The whole text, Matthew chapter 18, by the way, down to verse 15, deals with the same issue of sin and forgiveness. We don't have time to go through it all. But here in verse uh, 21, Peter, in response to what the Lord has said about the sinning brother in the church, and all, Peter says, well, then, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, rabbis taught that it would be up to three times that you were to forgive. Peter thought he was being generous. Three times shall we double it plus one, Lord? pretty good jesus said to him i do not say to you up to seven times but up to 70 times seven whoa snap (laughs) indefinitely unending why for we are to forgive as christ has forgiven us how many times has christ forgiven you 490 times better hope it doesn't get to 491 or you're in trouble Forgiveness runs out. Unending. Unending. He forgives us indefinitely. That's what the Lord is saying. Then he illustrates this to us. Verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now stop there for a second. I want you to get this. This guy was a real rat. Okay, 10,000 pounds is so much money, it's hard for us to even conceive. Uh, You might be thinking, how on earth can a servant uh, ever owe that much money? Um, Only thing I can think of, he's pilfering from the king's treasury uh, to be indebted beyond that point. That's like $10 million today. It would be beyond anyone's capacity to understand how much money that is back then. This guy's been robbing the king. Verse 25 But as he was not able to pay, he had lost it all somehow. So he not only stole it, he lost it all. His master commanded that he be sold, his wife and his children, all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Now look at verse 27. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, releasing him. And forgiving him the debt. This is amazing. 
Uh, guess who the king represents? God. Guess who the servants is here? All of us. Did we owe a debt that we could never pay? Oh, yep, you better believe it. And he has forgiven us. Why? He had compassion. He had compassion. Now, I want to show you just a little bit more of this guy because the story doesn't end. Same servant in verse 28 went out and found one of his fellow servants. He's been freed. Who owed him 100 denarii? It's like three months worth of work. Peanuts compared to what he owed. And he laid hands on him and grabbed him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that, saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that he had done. Then his master called him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was very angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Jesus ends this parable by saying, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. That's the picture, church. That's the picture. That's the picture of somebody who wants to take all of God's grace and forgiveness, everything that God can give, but it, he just isn't willing to give it to anyone else. Do we see ourselves here? Do we hold on to grudges or forgivenesses that we should be given? Have you so soon forgotten the mercy that you have received? Edward Hebert puts it well, I think. He said, he who cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. What have we learned? We learned the problem is sin. God has a provision. It's forgiveness. Man confesses his sin and God is faithful and just to forgive us. But there's a prerequisite, forgiving others. An unforgiving Christian is by definition a contradiction who has forgotten that their sins have been washed away. Let us learn to confess, church, and before you confess, learn to forgive. We are forever and always reminded of the forgiveness when we look to the cross of Calvary and Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, pinned to that cross for our wretched, awful, dirty sins that he took upon himself. That was the perfect forgiveness that was laid on that cross, and he provided for us the atonement. My first prayer would be that you know him personally before anything else, that you know him personally. If God has touched your heart this morning, thank you for hanging in. Um, or if you need uh, prayers of the church this morning, please come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.